Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. Today we're going to talk about race, which is, you know, it's probably the most controversial issue that you talk about. <laughs> we're hitting all of them. Um, this is a continuing series for us, the Engaging Culture series. The purpose of the series is really to equip every Christian to be able to know how to engage on a lot of these issues in which Christians get attacked, get questions, um, and in which we have to stand for truth and it can be difficult to do so. So that's kind of the purpose of this whole series. So when we talk about race, race um, is really the gateway to the entire world of 21st century Marxism. Okay, and it's it's basically the way that they get college students to kind of put your foot in the door, um, and that's by if you believe in systemic racism, that's really the first step. And you know, when I was in college, you know, it was it was taken for granted at my college. Everyone believed in systemic racism. I had never heard an argument against systemic racism. And so it was one of those things that was just taken for granted by pretty much everyone. Okay. And um, the big problem here is a lot of people, they take on these early beliefs without really knowing what it is that they're believing. They don't really know what the implications are of this. And specifically, I'm talking about things like systemic racism. I'm talking about social justice, right? They hear these phrases. They sound good. They're usually presented in a very positive light. And then it goes on from there. If you buy into those ideas, it opens you up to an entire world. And it's really a Marxist worldview. And um, that's what I'm going to really try and lay out here um, in this talk to give, I'm going to have lots of data, but what I'm also going to try and do is give a biblical perspective on all of this, okay? So, the narrative of systemic racism has become really foundational truth in America's universities. It's really hard. Um, it's it's really hard to go to college these days in America and end up not believing in systemic racism. I mean, kudos to those that do that. There are a lot more resources now than when I went to school. You know, when I was, you know, in college from 2000 to 2004. Um, there's a lot more resources online and a lot more people talking about this now, which I'm thankful for, okay? But the reality is still probably, I would guess, 90% of college students are leaving college um, really indoctrinated in these things, okay? And, um, you know, the pushback that I'll get even from a lot of Christians is, you know, what's the problem? What's Why do you have a problem with social justice? Or why is it bad to fight systemic racism? And, um, and it's because they don't understand the link between the idea of systemic racism and Marxism, okay? So that's what I'm really going to try to lay out. Um, but, you know, um, Black Lives Matter, for example, is a, a Marxist organization, Okay, it's focused on the on the race issues, but it is a Marxist organization. Okay, um, the co-founder Patrice Cullors said, "Quote myself and Alicia, in particular, are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists." Okay, so there's a clear link there, and that's why you know back in 2020, 2021, when you know all the Christian groups were supporting BLM, I was very alarmed because I you know I spoke with a number of people and said, "Hey, do you understand that they are openly Marxist?" Right, they're not—they're not hiding the ball. They've made public comments, you know, talking about how their framework is Marxist, 
And, um, you know, a lot of Christians are like, oh, they don't, to them, I think they think, oh, well, they might be Marxist, but they support, you know, black lives and I support black lives. And so, you know, I may not agree with them on the Marxism stuff, but, you know, I'm, I'm down, you know, to post the little black square and say black lives matter because I support that part. And what they don't understand is that part is the Marxist part. <laughs> okay. The, the part where you're supporting black lives matter is the part where you're supporting Marxism. Um, but a lot of people don't understand Marxism. And so they don't understand how they could possibly be supporting Marxism. Okay. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about here today. Okay. All right. So first of all, you know, what is systemic racism? Um, here's a definition from Nikki Lisa Cole. She says the United States was founded as a racist society. That racism is thus embedded in all social institutions, structures, and social relations within our society. Rooted in a racist foundation, systemic racism today is composed of intersecting, overlapping, and codependent racist institutions, policies, practices, ideas, and behaviors that give an unjust amount of resources, rights, and power to white people while denying them to people of color. Okay, so if you're familiar with critical race theory, there's a lot of critical race theory in you know her comment here. But yeah, systemic racism is basically the foundation of critical race theory. Right? It's where you believe that there are these systems in society that are designed to help white people and to hurt black people. Right. So if you believe in in this idea of systemic racism, then you believe that the reason why black people are poor is because of all of these unjust systems in society. So, for example, you think, you know, the police systems are really designed um, to keep black people down. Right. And protect white people. And you think, you know, the courts are, you know, biased and they always rule against black people and they always rule you know, for white people. And, you know, the schools are designed to help white people and to hurt black people, right? And it goes on and on and on. And so this is the framework of belief in this idea of systemic racism. And, and what it does is it explains why black people tend to be poor in America, why they tend to be, have, be over, overrepresented in prison, all of that kind of stuff. This is the explaining, you know, um, factor here, okay? It's because racism is embedded within the systems, okay? So this whole idea is Marxist, okay? This whole idea is Marxist. Um, but what I want to do is I want to go back to, to go over really the evolution of Marxism because you have to understand Marxism as a theory has been evolving over the years. And this is really a 21st century American, you know, variant of Marxism. Um, but it helps if you can understand kind of the progression, okay? So uh, classic Marxism is you know, the ideas of Karl Marx, and Marx lived in an age of nationalism, okay, meaning, you know, uh, you've got the Germans, and the Germans hate the French, right, and the Germans and the French go to war all the time because they hate each other, and if you're the average German, you hate the average French person, okay, and to Marx, this is foolish, right, because he sees the world not as a, uh, not as all these warring nations, he sees the world as warring classes, okay? And so he sees these workers, and they're working in these factories, and they're working long hours, and they're not getting paid a whole lot, and who's getting rich? The owners of the factories. And so, you know, to Karl Marx, his 
understanding was that, hey, if you're a factory, a German factory worker, your enemy is not the French factory worker, right? Your enemy, your true enemy is the factory owner. And the, the French factory worker, from that perspective, is your, is your comrade, right? Is your friend, is your brother. And you, what you guys really should be doing is you should band together against the factory owner because he's the one exploiting your labor. He's getting rich while you guys, you know, remain in poverty. And so, you know, Karl Marx um, advocated an idea called communism, right? And in this, in this, he wanted to change the system because what he said was that the problem is the system is rigged against the workers, right? The capitalist system is rigged. And so what we have to do is we've got to flip over the table and change the system, all right? Because this system is full of oppression um, against the working class. And so he advocated that all the workers of the world should unite and seize the means of production. They should seize the factories. They should seize all the stuff that the capitalists, the owners, owned. They should take it, and then they should share it, right? And this is, you know, the, the idea of communism, okay? And that would end the systemic oppression of workers, okay? So the key things to keep in mind is that classic Marxism was a way of seeing the world through a particular lens of class warfare, okay? And the the whole idea is that there's systems of oppression and the oppressed group should band together, right, and seek liberation from their oppressors, okay? That's Marxism really in a nutshell, but the classic variant of Marxism was very focused on this owner-worker dichotomy, right? That was Those were the two groups that were fighting, the owners and the workers, okay? Now, what happened is that Marx's ideas went through something of an evolution, okay? And this is um, what we'll call critical theory, okay? So critical theory, this is a Wikipedia definition, is a school of thought that seeks to liberate people from all forms of oppression and actively works to create a world in accordance with human needs, okay? Philosophical approaches within this broader definition include feminism, critical race theory, post-structuralism, queer theory, and forms of post-colonialism. Okay, so the idea of critical theory is that we're going to take the essence of Marxism, okay, which is the idea that there's these warring groups of people, and some people are on top, and they create systems that keep the people on the bottom down so that they can stay on top, okay? And now we're going to take that essential framework, and now we're going to apply it to all these different, where do we see oppression, you know, where do we see groups fighting and, and, and oppression happening? And, and, you know, that's why feminism is part of critical theory, okay? The idea that men have created, you know, patriarchal hierarchies, right? Where men are in charge and only men can be bosses, only men can rule, only men can be powerful, only men can give divorces, right? All, all this kind of stuff. And that gave rise to this idea of feminism where women have been oppressed throughout history and they need to band together against their oppressors and liberate themselves, okay? So that's, you know, the idea of feminism. And and queer theory is the same thing, right? Gay people have been oppressed for all of history, right, by the straight people. And now they need to, you know, band together against them and liberate themselves. And post-colonialism, post all these, you know, all these people groups were oppressed by the European you know, countries, the Western countries, and they need to band together and, you know, fight against them. And so there's all of these 
avenues of oppression, okay? And that gave rise to a theory, I don't have it on my slides, but this theory called intersectionality, all right? Intersectionality is the idea that a single person may, may belong to several of these identity groups, right? So you can have a single person and that person is a female, that person is queer, that person is... Um, you know, black, and so they have three avenues of oppression. So that person is more oppressed than the white queer male, right? Because that person only has one avenue of oppression, something like that, okay? And that's intersectionality, right? Where you, there's an, uh, each person has an intersection of, you know, places of privilege, identity groups of privilege and identity groups of oppression, okay? And, um, now what we're gonna we're gonna hone in on one of these schools of thought, which is the race avenue, okay, and that is critical race theory, okay. So critical race theory is basically gonna argue that there's all these different streams of oppression. It's part of critical theory, right, which is ultimately a Marxist way of seeing the world, okay. Um, and critical race theory is gonna focus in on the American race oppression. Okay, the American race oppression. It was de it was really developed by a, a Harvard law professor. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Cohen? I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and he basically made the argument that America was founded on white supremacy, right? That the um, founders of America were all white men, and they baked into the cake of America institutions and American societal structures this oppression that would keep black people down and would keep white people in charge and, you know, have them be richer and more powerful and all this kind of stuff, okay? So, you know, critical race theory holds that racism is inherent in the law and legal institutions of the United States insofar as they function to create and maintain social, economic, and political inequalities between whites and non-whites, especially African Americans. Okay, so critical race theory is, is highly focused on the black-white dichotomy, right? Because it's making an argue, argument from history, right? Historically, you know, all these institutions were formed in a time when there were slaves in America. And so that's why whites in particular um, instituted all of these racist systems into the structural um, components of America um, to hold down black people. That's why it's focused a lot on white and black. Okay. All right. So that's critical race theory in a nutshell. Okay. Now what, you know, what we have to understand about critical race theory is that it really is a, a point of faith. Okay. And what I mean by that is that the way critical race theory works and the way it's preached is like, hey, this is the founding, you know, um, this is the founding values of America. America was founded in white supremacy and racism. Okay, and now look at all these evidences, and then it and then it's going to try to point to all of these different things that show that it was founded in white supremacy. Okay. And that's, you know, look, in a nutshell, that's what Marxism is, okay? In a nutshell, Marxism is a religion of grievance, okay? It's a religion of believing that you're oppressed, okay? And what they're trying to do is they're trying to preach to you that you are oppressed. And here, and now they're going to point to all the places, you know, of their evidences of oppression, okay? And what they're going to try and do is present a bad guy, a bad tribe that is oppressing you, 
and to make you part of the coalition that is devoted to overthrowing that bad, powerful tribe. Okay, That is Marxism in a nutshell. In Marx's day, it was workers and owners, Okay, and there's still that variant of classic Marxism alive and well. Right When you hear Bernie Sanders, for example, that's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear a lot of classic Marxism. Um, but it, you know, the the Marxism that really caught fire in America was critical race theory. Okay, um, America had always been very resilient against classic Marxism. Okay, in fact, you know, I remember when I was studying history, Stalin was really upset because they tried to plant agents in America to get communist revolution going here, but America was very resistant to that. Just the American culture was very resistant to it. Um, but critical race theory grabbed hold of um, a, a, a group in America and, and has grown from there, okay? So critical race theory is the variant of Marxism that works in American culture, okay? Now, what I want to point out here is that one of the classic tactics of Marxists is they're going to redefine words, okay? They're going to redefine words. So... One of the reasons why critical race theory is is so powerful is because what it does is it accuses people of being racist. And we as Americans are firmly decided that racism is a bad thing. Does that make sense? Okay, like we fought this huge battle with the Civil War and Reconstruction and Jim Crow and this huge battle over the issue of racism. And thankfully we basically came to a place where we agreed that racism is evil. Racism is wrong, okay? What critical race theory does is it capitalizes on that agreement that's still pretty fresh in American history, right? It says, oh, good, I'm glad we all agree that racism is wrong, but you don't really, but there's all this racism that's still left, and it's right here, okay? Um, and it's called systemic racism, okay? And... They're going to argue now that if you support these systems of racism, then you are a racist. Now, I want to clarify here. That is a different definition of racism. It's a vi In fact, it's a very different definition of racism. Okay? I'm going to give some examples here. Okay? Martin Luther King Jr. said this famously in his I Have a Dream speech. Okay? He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Okay? That is, obviously, that I Have a Dream speech was pivotal in kind of the overthrowing of racism in America. Okay? It's a very important speech, very powerful, influential speech. But the definition of racism that you know King is using there is the classic definition. That's the definition that I share Right? It's the definition that most people in the world understand. When you say racism, they understand that this is what racism is. Racism is when you see somebody who's of a different race and you hate them or you despise them because they're of a different race and you don't even know them. Okay, You're not seeing them first as individuals. You're seeing them as people of a different race that you despise. Okay, That's classic racism. Okay, That is not what systemic racism is. Okay, that is not what systemic racism is. And they're very clear about this, okay? That systemic racism isn't about a personal bias necessarily, okay? What it's about, it's about understanding there are these systems, 
these structures in society that oppress people of a different racial group. And if you support those systems, then you are a racist by their definition of racist. And that is a different definition because you may not have any personal hatred in your heart towards um, towards somebody of another race. But if you support these systems that they argue hold them down, then you are racist, even if you don't have that bias. Okay. So what they're doing is they're expanding racism in a very serious way. That that label of racism they're expanding it. And I want to give you some examples because you know these are these are some you know, leftists, some quotes, okay? So, Ayanna Presley, who is, you know, a, a politician, a Democrat politician from Massachusetts, she said, quote, we don't need any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice, all right? We don't need any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice. Okay, understand what she's talking about. She is talking about uh, people like Larry Elder and Herman Cain and Thomas Sowell, and maybe Coleman Hughes. Okay, I'm pointing out um, these are all black people that don't agree with this narrative of systemic racism. Okay, so they're speaking out against the narrative of systemic racism. And what Ayanna Presley is saying is, we don't need those guys. We don't. We don't want those people around, right? And what what she's saying is that I don't care if they're black. This isn't about whether they're black. They may be black, but they don't, they're not being black voices, okay? Like, I saw a quote, you know, where Larry Elder was called the black face of white supremacy. <laughs> like, and, and that's a real thing, right? That many people on the left would argue that Larry Elder, who is a conservative black radio host, that he is a white supremacist. It doesn't matter that he's black, Right? He's actually black. He's a white supremacist because he's supporting these systems that they argue are keeping black people down. And it's obviously because he disagrees. He doesn't think that the these systems do hold black people down. He doesn't think that's the reason, which is obviously what I agree with and what we're going to get into in specifics in a little bit. But because he doesn't support their agenda, they don't want his black face around all right this is this is racism okay this is this is bigotry is what it is okay this is bigotry ibram x akendi who is one of the main voices you know on the left when it comes to critical race theory he said he says this quote the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination all right he said that in his book how to be anti-racist okay what what he's saying is that because there was past discrimination and what that did was it, it it created these systems of oppression and now all these white people they benefited from that so now they're richer and what we need now to fix that is present discrimination so what we need to do is discriminate against white people so that black people can can get you know level the playing field something like that okay and so what I'm what I'm trying to point out here is that if you embrace this idea of systemic racism, if you decide I'm going to fight against systemic racism, what it's inevitably going to lead you to is to become an actual racist. <laughs> okay? It be leads you to become an actual bigot because you're now actually doing the opposite of what Martin Luther King Jr. argued for. 
right? He said he wanted a a country where his kids were not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That is a colorblind vision of equality, right? Hey, it doesn't matter if they're black, if they're white, it doesn't matter if they're Asian, it doesn't matter. Judge them on their merits, right? Judge them on their character, okay? That is a colorblind vision of society, and that is a conservative perspective now, okay? That perspective is in direct opposition against the Marxist left, against groups like Black Lives Matter, okay? They would call that white supremacy. They would argue that Martin Luther King Jr. is a black white supremacist if he were saying these things today, okay? That's uh, that's my point here. The, the amazing thing about Marxism throughout history is that if you buy into these ideas, you actually become the thing that you say that you hate, okay? Because they're talking about how they hate racism, and yet what you're going to find is that people on the, on the far left are the most racist people in our culture, okay? They're the most race-conscious, most racist people in our culture. They're the ones who are going to say, hey, you should not hire that person. It doesn't matter if he's qualified. If he's white, you should not hire him, Okay? They're going to try and discriminate on the basis of race, which is exactly what they were upset was done to them in the past. But they're the ones advocating for it today. Okay, And that's what we have. Okay, That's what we have where a lot of people are supporting this kind of thing in the name of being an anti-racist. In the name of being an anti-racist, they become a racist. Right? It's, it's the same thing with groups like Antifa. Antifa is anti-fascist. Right? That's what it stands for. But they use fascist tactics. They're actually the most fascist group in America, right? And that is the, the, the lie of Marxism. And this is not just modern day. This is historically how it works, right? What you had in the, the Soviet communist revolutions, right? The Bolshevik revolution. You had all this talk about like the, you know, the, the capitalists have been oppressing the workers. And then, you know, guys like Lenin and Stalin get in power, and what do they do? They become the much, much greater oppressors, right? Whatever oppression existed before them, they far outdid. <laughs> and, but that's the nature of Marxism, because what it does is it trains you to see the perceived evil of others around you and to become blind towards your own evil, right? It teaches you, in this case, right, you're going to hear a lot of people say, it's impossible for black people to be racist, Okay. You're going to hear a lot of people today say that. Black people cannot be racist. Why? Because they've redefined racism. Racism now, the way they define it, prejudice plus power. Okay, that's the way it gets taught in most American universities today. It's not just prejudice, right? Prejudice plus power, meaning black people don't have power in their Marxist worldview. And so it's impossible for them to be racist without that power component. So you can have a black person that literally hates white people and wants them to die just because they're white. And from their perspective, that person is not racist. Okay? And in fact, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay? That's that's how twisted and wicked this whole system is. Okay? And why don't... Why do they think that? Because they don't have structural systemic power just because they're black. Because in their worldview, black people do not have structural systemic power, which is, by the way, the most ridiculous thing, okay? Black people in America have way more structural systemic power than, for example, Asian people, okay? There are far more black politicians, black police chiefs, okay? Far more than Asian 
variations of those. And by the way, Asians have a much higher higher income despite their lack of quote-unquote systemic power. That's why there's so many holes in this whole theory. The, the theory really makes no sense, all right? It's not logically consistent, but what it is is it's compelling because if you feel like you've been oppressed in your life, what it does is it gives validation to that feeling, okay? It gives, you know, comfort to those who felt wronged in their life by other people. And guess what? That's literally every single person on the face of the earth, okay? Every single person on the face of the earth has felt wronged in some way. But what Marxism does is it nurtures that resentment. It nurtures that bitterness. Okay, we're going to get more into that later. But I want us to understand how this this ideology works, why it's so compelling, and why it's so destructive. Okay. Um, the last thing I'm going to mention here is this idea of social justice. Okay, social justice, it just means group justice. Okay, and that's as opposed to individual justice. All right, so it's really important to understand because especially Christians, Christians are using the term social justice all the time. And I always tell them, don't don't use that term. That's a Marxist term. It was it was created by Marxist thinkers. Okay? Don't don't use the term social justice. There are perfectly good terms to use for the Christian variants of this that are actually healthy, like charity, right? If you're talking about, hey, we want to go and feed the homeless and do some social justice. No, you're not doing social justice by feeding the homeless, okay? That's not actually what that term means, all right? That you're you're doing charity work, which is good. That's a, that's a wonderful word, okay? Like do charity. But you have to understand what does social justice actually mean, okay? Social justice is inherently group oriented. So traditionally, justice is referred is used to refer to individuals, okay? So for example, if an individual cheats another, well, he should be punished. That would be justice, okay? If I steal your laptop, then it's justice for me to pay a fine or go to jail and you get your laptop back, right? Because I did something evil and wrong against you and then you're compensated for what you lost, okay? That's justice, but that's individual justice. That's not social justice, okay? Social justice, it's primarily groups, okay? It's thinking about group justice, okay? So a good example here is if, an individual white person, you know, gets the same SAT score as a black person, but they they can't get into as good colleges because of affirmative action. So they go to a lesser school. Okay, so what's happening is the white person is being discriminated against because of his race. All right, even though he has the same merit as another black person. Okay, but that that white person going to a worse school is actually social justice. It's group justice. Because it is, it is evening the scales of, of group justice, right? There's not enough black people in school, in high-quality schools. So what are we doing? We're discriminating against, you know, whites and Asians who, you know, might have higher scores, but their groups are oppressing others. So they need to be discriminated against so that we can have more social justice, right? And, you know, what you have to understand is that this is, um, it. social justice is injustice, <laughs> okay? All right, th that's the problem with all of this. This it, What you're actually doing is you're justifying racial discrimination. You're justifying hurting one person wrongly because they belong to this group that you perceive as being powerful in society or something like that, okay? But this whole worldview is so flawed, okay? It's so flawed because... You know, just take a step back and think about it for one second, 
right? You have lots of white people growing up in poor situations, okay? You have lots of white people growing up without both their parents. You have white people grow up that have been abused and all this kind of stuff. These are all the various things that, you know, we argue that because, you know, black people come from, you know, lower incomes and they have more broken families and all this kind of stuff, therefore we should help them this ladder. But the whole point is that it shouldn't be by race. <laughs> Just because one race has this happening more often doesn't mean that race is the best way to be making these social justice categorizations. It's clearly not, right? And what it results in is actual injustice for many, many people, okay? And, th and that's the problem. The Marxist stuff, it, it, it literally justifies doing evil in the name of doing good, okay? The other aspect of social justice is equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity, okay? Again, in America, historically, we wanted equality of opportunity, all right? Equality of opportunity, meaning we want everybody to have the same chance, all right? Like, if everybody goes to school, you know, to elementary school and then, then to junior high and high school and, you know, they get good grades and they do well, then we don't want to care about what their race is. We want them to be able to go to a good college and get a high-paying job, right, on the basis of their achievements, on the basis of their merit, okay? And we want everyone to have that equal opportunity, all right? That's the goal. But that is not the goal of the social justice warriors. That's not the goal of the far left, okay? Their goal is not to, to give equal opportunity. Their goal is to give equal outcome, okay? And that is communism, right? That is the in inherent, you know, goal of communism, right? That, hey, we're all going to get the same pay from the government, right? And, but there's a big problem. Some people work harder than others, right? And that was always the problem with communism, right? If you read like, Animal Farm, you know, George Orwell, you know, it's a story, it, it, it's it's a it's an, a metaphor, an analogy of a communist system, right? And you've got all these animals, and, you know, they all are going to share equally. They're not going to be oppressed by the mean human who used to run the farm. Right now, they're running the farm themselves, and, hey, we're all going to share in the good stuff. We're all going to share together, except, you know, I think it was, there was a horse <laughs> that starts to realize, you know, she doesn't have to work. If she doesn't work she still gets the same benefits, right? And it the whole system starts to go into chaos, right? And that this is the way it's worked in communist societies every single time, right? Is that the problem with the, the utopian vision of communism is that when you promise that everybody's going to get the same outcome, right? Well, then people don't put in the same effort because you need that motivation, right? Who wants to work hard if it doesn't do anything for you, right? If you don't get any benefit from working hard, why should you work hard, right? Like... That's just, this is just normal human psychology, all right? And so that's that's the problem with this whole thing, this idea of the equality of outcome based off race is, is such a ridiculous category to do this. Um, and and of course, if it's, it's, it's going to incentivize all the wrong things. It's not going to incentivize merit, okay? And, um, and that is a, a huge problem with all of this, okay? All right, the next section of what I'm going to talk about is what I'm going to call cooking the books, all right? And it's how Marxists use stats to lie, all right? Because what you're, if you go to university, man, you're going to hear so many statistics and so many figures and so many, you know, things that are going to, they're trying to convince you that systemic racism is a real thing, okay? 
and I want you to understand, they do use true stats, but they use the stats to lie. And by the way, this is how all, you know, this is how all sophisticated liars do it, right? Like, you you uh, give convincing data, but you don't tr show all the data, right? And uh, in normal conversation, that's fine. But the problem is this is happening in our universities, where our universities are not being honest with the data, okay? And by the way, if, if you want to understand why, it's because universities are incredibly political also, all right? I remember I heard an um, interview from a, a history professor that used to teach at Harvard, and um, he talked about how, I believe, in the 80s or 90s, what started, you know, in the 80s and 90s, they had a pretty diverse history department, and uh, in, like intellectually diverse, meaning... You know, in every academic discipline, there's always different perspectives, right? Some people say, oh, no, you know, World War II started because of Hitler. And some say, no, World War II started because of, you know, the Treaty of Versailles. And some say, no, World War II started because, you know, America's power was growing. Or, you know, there's all these different perspectives of, of history, right? But what started to happen in the 80s and 90s is some of these uh, far leftists, these Marxists, started to get the department chairs at Harvard. And what they started to do is they started to get rid of all the non-leftists and they started to hire only leftists. And what happened is that Harvard had a pretty intellectually diverse faculty, but over the subsequent years, they got rid of everybody that didn't agree with the Marxist perspective. And by the way, that happened all over, right? At all the universities, this was happening. And um, this is how it works in communism, by the way. If you, you know, study communism, what they try and do is they try and seize education centers. They try and seize teaching centers because if you can convince young people and all this, then you indoctrinate them in Marxist ideas um, and, and young people are impressionable. Young people trust faculty and stuff like that. They trust professors, right? They don't know better, okay? This is standard communism infiltration tactics, okay? And that's what happened in America, all right? So there's a reason why, you know, 98% of the faculty donations at Ivy League schools, including Harvard, they all go to Democrats, all right? It is, it is the most insane thing, how strong the stronghold is in the universities. And the thing that bothers me the most is that when I point out stats like that to people, you know, they go, well, it's because, you know, conservatives, you know, they're not as smart, you know, it's because smart people are, you know, smart people are Democrats, smart people are, you know, liberals, you know, or like, you know, conservatives are greedy, they just want to go and make lots of money. And that's why they don't go into academia. And it's like, dude, if moderate Democrats are unwilling to even see the incredible um, corruption, the like how wrong that is. It's so wrong what's going on. But if moderate Democrats won't stand up, which is the problem, that's that's what that's how they got in power, okay? Because the far leftists were essentially allied with the moderate people on the left because they hate the people on the right because they feel like they're fighting the people on the right, and they let the Marxists take over the whole you know, the whole university system. And now what you see probably in the past five, 10 years is now some of the moderate Democrats have started pushing back, okay? And um, I'm thankful for that, okay? But there should be some humility that they're the ones who opened the door to all this in the first place, okay? Guys like, you know, Bill Maher, right? Like, you know, Bill Maher is now being accused of being a, a right-wing fascist all over the place, right? Because 
he is now starting to push back against the excesses of the left. But it was Bill Maher that was largely allied with them for a long time while they were doing this really underhanded stuff. And it's like, ah, we don't. who needs conservative professors? You know, we don't want them, you know, making young conservatives in our universities and stuff like that. And that's kind of my problem with, with a lot of this stuff. The Marxist stuff is so dishonest. It's so grossly dishonest, all right? Every time, you know, and it expands beyond that, right? Every time I hear, you know, Democrats say, when we're talking about abortion, right? Oh, it's because you don't, you're, you're trying to oppress women, and it's a woman's right to choose. Like, that, it's such a dishonest argument. Like, you know that's a dishonest argument, or you should know. It's, it's obvious. I can, I can explain to you why it's a dishonest argument in about a minute, right? Because the issue is not a woman's right to choose. We're talking about, is the baby a person? If the baby is a person, if the fetus is a person, then it, we both agree that a mom doesn't have the right to kill her one-year-old son, right? So that's what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that a, a fetus is a person, and you're throwing back at me this idea that I'm trying to oppress women because they, you know, because I, I, I hate women and I don't want them to be able to have the right to choose. You know that's a dishonest argument. It's, it's not honest at all. And yet that was the most popular argument on the left for many years. I, I feel like it's only now starting to you know, become less popular. But my point is, I didn't just hear that from far leftists. I heard that from moderates all over the place, right? And that unwillingness to be intellectually honest has allowed this Marxist stuff to, to become so deep in our society. And that's my problem. When I, when I talk with moderates, moderate Democrats, when I say, hey, do you understand that BLM... Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. And they go, oh, you're just slandering them, right? Are you using that like a, in a pejorative sense? I'm like, no, I'm using it in an accurate sense because what I'm trying to tell you is you don't understand the aims of this organization. And if you did, I don't think you would support it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look into some of these um, statistics that are often used to justify the idea of systemic racism, okay? And I'm, I'm going to try to point out why they're... they're they're incredibly dishonest, okay? All right, so one of the, the classic ones, I, I took some of these stats from Ben & Jerry's because Ben & Jerry's is a pretty progressive company. I like some of their ice cream, but personally, I don't buy any of their ice cream anymore because I, I try not to support, you know, very outspoken, progressive, woke companies, okay? So uh, they say, on their website, this is on their website, quote, blacks make up 13% of the population. They represent about 40% of the prison population. For many years, laws assigned much harsher sentences for using or possessing crack, for example, compared to cocaine, okay? So this is a very common argument. I've heard this one many, many times, okay? The, the idea is this, that um, there were laws that punished people much more harshly for having crack cocaine versus having powder cocaine. And the reason is because crack cocaine was more popular in the black community, right? And that is an evidence of systemic racism, okay? The, the problem with this line of thinking is that black politicians were instrumental in pushing forward that harsher legislation, okay? And, and it's pretty understandable why, because they wanted to clean up their neighborhoods, okay? There was a lot of pressure from the black community in places like Harlem, right? Where they were, they were pressuring their politicians, hey, we need to have harsher sentences for this crack cocaine because it's destroying our neighborhoods, okay? And uh, that gets left out of the explanation. What The way it's presented is like, 
it's because of racist white people. There were these racist white politicians. They, you know, wanted black people in prison, and so they they put forward this idea that we're gonna we're gonna give harsher sentences towards crack and the powder one, which is what white people like. Ah, we're gonna give lighter sentences because we like these white people and we don't want to be so hard on them. Okay, that's dishonest. That is dishonest. Okay, there's a, a great study I included the link here. Okay, the carceral state and the crucible of black politics and urban history of the Rockefeller drug laws. Okay, this is by Michael Fortner. Um, from Cambridge University Press in 2013. He's now a professor at Claremont McKenna College, okay? He's a black professor, okay? Um, this is a dishonest argument, okay? This is dishonest. And and again, the idea blacks make up 13% of the population, but they represent about 40% of the prison population, okay? This is really important that we uh, go into this because what the argument here is that, uh, look, blacks are such a small percentage of the U.S., but they're like half the prisons are filled with black people. Why? Well, it's because you've got corrupt policemen, you've got corrupt lawyers, corrupt judges, and they don't realize, you know, some of them don't realize, but they inherently look at black people and they're like, those black people are evil and they're wrong and they're thugs and they're more likely to sentence them harshly and all this kind of stuff. It's all, the the implicit statement here is that this is because of white supremacy. This is because of white privilege and power. Okay, and I just want to say that's a lie. That's a lie, and it's 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 such a gross lie, because it's impugning all of these people. Okay, and there's so much evidence at this point to understand that it's a lie. That it it honestly shocks me that people continue to believe this. All right, it honestly shocks me. All right, here's the truth: Black Americans commit more violent crimes. That is the simple truth, and there's so much evidence and data on this. Okay, I'm going to give just a handful of data points about this. Okay, in 2019, there were 562,000 reported black and white incidents. These are interracial incidents, right? Where uh, a black and white person got in some type of violent altercation. All right, 84% of those incidents were black people attacking white people. Okay, in the vast majority of cases of interracial crime between black and white people, it was black people attacking white people, okay? And that's not an exception, okay? It's not just like that blacks hate white people, okay? Um, in 2018, for example, there were 182,000 reports of Asian victims, okay? Of these, the offender was white 24% of the time, black 28% of the time, okay? Now, what you should understand is that when it comes to racial violence, the vast majority is usually the same race, okay? So if we're talking about of all the violent attacks against Mexicans in a year, right? The group that's going to attack Mexicans the most are other Mexicans, okay? Then it's almost always that way, all right? Because Mexicans interact a lot more with Mexicans and black people interact a lot more with black people. White people interact a lot more with white people than other people of other races, generally speaking, okay? So most of that most of that violence comes from their own. But that... That does not prove true in the case of Asian crime. What you're going to see is that blacks, even though right, they're only 12% of the population, they had the highest, they were the group that attacked Asians most often. Okay, In fact, what you're going to see is that in Asian black crime, violent crime, when there's an, an, an incident involving an Asian black person, one attacked the other, Okay, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's the black that attacks the Asian. All right? It's literally 280 times more, all right? And I think that's fairly obvious to anybody just 
you know, just looking at these things, all right? You don't have to even know these stats to know that this is this is what we see in reality, okay? This is what we see in reality, all right? Like, I remember some years back, there was all this talk about anti-Asian hate, right? Because there were, you know, there was a, a mass increase in, you know, Asian hate crimes spiking in places like New York, right? We actually did a podcast episode that on that, having a discussion in the Righteous Remnant group. And, you know, we looked into some of the data and it was clear that the media had cooked some of those numbers, right? It was like, one one of them was something like, you know, there's a 2,000% increase of anti-Asian hate crimes in New York City, right? And that's because the year before there had been like three, <laughs> right? So there were like 20 or something like that. It's like a 2,000%. You know, it this sensationalism because they're pushing a narrative, right? And then what started to happen was that a lot of these anti-Asian attacks started to get captured on video and they started being put online on social media. And in like, in pretty much every single one that I saw, they were all black people attacking Asians, okay? They were all black people attacking Asians. It was that, like, if you had told me that oh, there's another video of a person attacking an Asian person, I could tell you with 90% certainty, it's probably a black person, right? And I could tell you that when the, the newspaper reported, they didn't mention that it was a black person, right? Because there's an agenda. There's an agenda. There's a narrative that is being sold. And the idea that black people attack Asians all the time is not a part of that narrative that they want to sell, okay? But the, the point is the truth doesn't align with their narrative, okay? Today, there's all of these... Um, video footages of looting happening in California, right? It's happening all over the place because um, these DAs, these district attorneys in Los Angeles and San Francisco, they've basically said, we're not going to prosecute, you know, theft of businesses. And so what do you have? You have these like gangs of almost always black people going into these stores and looting them, right? Just robbing them blind. And there's so many videos of, of this now, okay? And, my point is not to say that black people are evil. That's not the point here, okay? But it is a factual truth that black people commit more violent crime in America than other groups. If we're talking about per capita, if we're talking about a percentage of the population, black people are only 12% of the population, but they they commit about 50% of the violent crime in America. That is factual truth, okay? And it's not it it's not to say that no oh, black people are always you know they hate white people and they're always attacking white people. No, the, the victims of most black people are other black people, okay? Larry Elder said, said this, a young black man is eight times more likely to be killed by another young black man than by a white man, okay? That's statistically true, okay? There's all this talk about, you know, you know, white people, you know, white cops attacking black people, all this kind of stuff. That is a, is an, is a lie. That is a lie, okay? There's, if you're an average black person in America, the great danger for you is not white cops, Okay, the average danger for you is not, you know, white racists coming after you. No, the greatest danger for you is other black men. Okay, that is the greatest danger. The, it's the number one cause of preventable death among black adolescents is homicide by other black men. Okay, that's the state of how this works today. All right, last example in Los Angeles, blacks committed, you know, in 2021. Blacks committed 46% of homicides whose offender is known, even though they're just 9% of the L.A. population, 
Okay, whites make up 28% of Ellie's population, but have committed 4% of homicides, and, and most of those were domestic violence homicides. Okay, so what this means is that this data, this is reported by the LA Times. Okay, the LA Times is known for being pretty far left. All right, this data means that a black citizen of LA is 35 times more likely to commit homicide than a white citizen of LA. Okay, okay, the, the, this is the actual data. This is the reality. Okay, and by the way, it's pretty obvious. Again, I say it again. It's pretty obvious. All right. I, I remember when I was a student at Berkeley, I um, my friend started a, a food delivery business, and so I drove for him a bit. And um, I would deliver food to these apartment buildings and these you know residential housing places where all the students lived. And um, man, a lot of these places would have warning posters up for violent crimes that have been committed in this area. A lot of them were sexual assaults. Okay, and they would have pictures. I'll just tell you, it like they were all black men. Okay, every warning was of some black man that had committed a violent assault, right, a sexual assault near this apartment building, right. And there were warnings all over the place. I remember being shocked by this because I I didn't know this at that time, and I was like, oh my gosh, why are they all black? <laughs> like, you know, I was a young you know, 20 year old or something like that, you know, like I, I just didn't understand. But, you know, now having lived a few more years, I understand, oh, th yeah, this is the reality of how it works. And the problem is this is so politically incorrect to say now because it goes against the narrative of systemic racism. Okay. But here's the truth. Okay. Here's the truth. It is far more accurate, in my opinion, to say that blacks are oppressing other races than it is to say that other races are oppressing blacks. In my opinion, it is far more accurate to say that. In America, okay. Now, again, I need to be clear. There are so many wonderful black people, okay. Some of my heroes are black men and women that I highly respect. I'm not saying that all black people are bad. There are some amazing black people, and there are amazing black leaders, okay. But the problem is, we live in a society now where if you say something negative or you just point out factual realities about these race, you know, based crimes and stuff like that, that it's considered racist to even talk about them. And I, I want to say that's because of this Marxist influence. That's because of this narrative of systemic racism that so many people believe that is completely wrong. Okay, it's completely, it's it's lies. The whole thing is lies, and they're indoctrinating all of these young people, college students, and let me just say, especially women. They're indoctrinating, especially all of these young women, to believe this stuff, and it's all based off lies. Okay, it's all based off lies. Okay, the, the second stat we're going to look at is the wealth gap. So we talked about criminal justice, now the wealth gap. Okay, here's Ben and Jerry's again. White families, quote, white families hold 90% of the national wealth. Latino families hold 2.3% and black families hold 2.6%. For every $100 white families earn in income, black families earn just $57.30. That's almost unbelievable. And it's a huge racial justice issue. Okay, that's the quote. Again, they're saying a couple different things here. Number one, they're saying that white people have most of the wealth in America. And number two, they're saying that the white median income is almost twice as much as the black median income. And what they're saying is that because of those two statistical facts, it's a huge racial justice issue, meaning there's huge injustice in society. Now, are they saying that because what they're, what they're saying is uh, there's all of these white people stealing, they're going to the houses of black people and stealing their money and taking it, right? They're actually committing 
crimes in unjust crimes against them. And they're and they're not, that's not what they're saying. They're saying that because there's such wealth inequality by race, that constitutes a huge injustice in society. Because what they're saying is that if we had quote unquote racial justice, you know, blacks would have, you know, X amount of the national income, I guess it should be 12%, you know, 12% of the wealth of America should be blacks, but I would bet if you pinned a lot of black thinkers down, they'd argue 12% is also injustice, <laughs> right, even though that's, you know, the, the percentage of the population they are, okay, um, and the median income would be completely equal, right, everyone would make $100 on average, okay, something like that, um, and again, that is communism, that is not reality. Are we going to assume that all black people and all white people and all Asian people and all Mexican people are going to work exactly the same? They're going to work, they're going to all, you know, like, there's no difference. There's no cultural difference. There's zero cultural difference, right? The, where does this apply? Like, there's going to be, you know, one-fifth, I don't know, it depends how many racial groups we're going to designate, right? Right? One-fifth of the NBA is going to be Asian now. <laughs> all right, that's racial justice, you know, like, no, there are other factors involved, right? But this conveniently, you know, sidesteps all of that. It doesn't even try to address it, okay? So the first thing I'll say about this, again, this stat that I think is a lie, essentially, okay? It's true that the actual specific numbers are true, but the implication is a clear lie. First of all, we would expect whites to hold the majority of national wealth. Guess what? If you go to China, I would bet Chinese hold most of the wealth. If you go to Japan, I would bet Japanese people hold most of the wealth, okay? If you go to India, I bet most Indian people hold most of the wealth, okay? Well, guess what? America is a predominantly white nation for its entire history, okay? It, it's got way more white people in it throughout its history. So, of course, we would expect that they have most of the wealth, all right? The the issue that, you know, we need to actually d dive into is the, the median income, okay? Wh okay, all right, fine. White people have most of the wealth because they're most of the country, and historically they were, you know, more than 90% of the country, okay? But why is it now, today, in 2023, that your average black person makes $57, whereas the average white person makes $100? How is that fair, just say? Why should that be the case if we have no more systemic racism and all this kind of stuff, okay? And um, I, I will get into that in detail. All I want to simply say is this. Even though white people in this analogy make $100, you have to understand they're not the top. Asians are the top. Asians make more, have a higher median income than white people. So my immediate question is, all right, if systemic racism is the reason, all right, because that's what they're arguing. They're arguing that the reason why black people make so much less than white people is because of systemic racism. If that's the reason, then why are Asians making the most? How are Asians benefiting from white systemic racism? How are they Im how are they benefiting from the embedded white supremacy in all of the institutions and structures of America? How does that make any sense? All right? The answer is that it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense, okay? The the entire narrative is flawed. Let me point out some other problems with the narrative first. Uh, West Indies or black immigrant Americans. Okay? So these are these are black Americans, but they're they're more recently immigrated to America from the West Indies, okay? They earn 58% more than native black Americans, okay? They have higher rates of high school graduation, college graduation, lower rates of crime. Okay, this is a big problem because what you have is you have people that look black, okay? They look just as black as, 
you know, somebody who has been here, a black American whose whose black ancestry goes back a couple generations in America, they look the same. Why do they earn more? Why are they completing school more often? Right? Wouldn't they have the same, you know, structural problems, you know, structures in America that are holding them back and oppressing them and stuff? And the answer is no, they don't, because the, the systemic racism is is not really there. It's not really the issue. Okay. Second example: Jews. Okay. If you know the history of the Jewish people, we all know that they have been persecuted in pretty much every single historical context in which they've lived. Okay. There's widespread persecution against Jews living in Europe. Widespread persecution in Russia. Widespread persecution, obviously, the Holocaust. Okay. Like they have been persecuted more than any other people group um, throughout history. And what we find is that in all of those contexts, they thrive economically, okay? The reason why oftentimes they get persecuted is because they are doing so well financially that it arouses jealousy and all sorts of things. And, and that's true here in America, right? So they're less than 1% of the global population, but they receive 22% of the Nobel Prizes in chemistry and 32% in both medicine and physics from 1950 to 2000, all right? Jews are are, are crazy overrepresented, right? Um, if you're talking about, you know, CEOs in America, if you're talking about college professors in America, if you're talking about a lot of these, you know, high-level, you know, professional categories, Jews are way overrepresented. By the way, Jews are also the the number one target of hate crimes in America, okay, by a wide margin. All right, if we're talking about hate crimes, Jews receive more hate crimes than any other group by a lot, okay? How is it that despite all of that persecution, they're doing so, so well? Well, again, it's because the whole idea of systemic racism is garbage, okay? Systemic racism doesn't matter, okay? Even if you have systems that are per, that are specifically designed to keep Jews back, they'll still do well economically, right? And that's true, you know, in in a number of other areas, okay? My whole my whole point in saying this is because systemic racism doesn't do much, okay? That's that's the idea here, all right? Another example, modern-day Chinese people living in Indonesian Malaysia, okay? So if you go to Indonesian Malaysia, Chinese people are just 5% of the population of, of Indonesia, but they own four-fifths of the capital of the country, okay? Chinese people, even though they're 5% of the population, they own four-fifths of the capital. That is incredible, all right? How is it? How is it that this small minority group in Indonesia is so rich comparatively, okay? If we're talking about the idea, again, of this majority population that is creating these systems to hold down the minorities and stuff like that, okay? And lastly, the last you know example that I started off with is, is Asians in America, okay? And what I'm going to point out is this, okay? Affirmative action. Affirmative action is the practice that most colleges have where they specifically discriminate against um, Asians and white people, right? You, like, uh, we all know this is happening, right? Everyone knows, okay? This is happening, um, and it's happening in the name of racial justice, all right? It's happening, you know, to level the playing field, right? So you have an, if you're an Asian and you apply to Harvard, you have to be something like in the top 4% of, of Harvard ap applicants, okay? It's insane, okay? You have to be like the best of the best to be a, an Asian and to get into Harvard, okay? If you're a black applicant to Harvard, you just have to be in the top 40% of applicants, okay? Like, it, this is some major discrimination. Okay, now, despite this incredible discrimination that affects every single Asian person, by the way, um, Asians still have the highest median income in America, Okay, if we're talking about oh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, 
a lot of argument goes, oh, black people don't have representation, you know, in politics, right? You have these white, you have these corrupt white city council members and governors and all this kind of stuff, and, and, and they're discriminating against black people, right? All of that is garbage, okay? Asians have, you know, almost no representation politically, very little, relatively speaking. Th that's because political representation doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect those things, okay? All Because the entire narrative of systemic racism, that it's these systems in society that cause these things, is, is a lie, all right? Now we're going to talk about what is actually causing these things, okay? What, is, what actually causes, you know, some groups to do better socioeconomically than other groups? You know, why do Asians do so well, all right? This is the answer right here, okay? This is non-marital birth rates in the United States, okay, between 1940 in 2014. Okay, so this is the idea of like, if a woman gets pregnant and she's not married, all right, then boom, it shows up on this chart. All right, so if you look all the way through 1960, what you're going to see is that white people had a non-marital birth rate of 5% or below. Okay, very few, relatively speaking, babies were born in America to white people um, without having, you know, two married parents. All right. They almost always did. We don't have, you know, black, specifically black data going back much before 1970. We just have non-white, okay? So if you look at non-white, it was still under 20%, though, right? It was still under 20% all the way through the 1950s into 1960. What you see in the 1960s specifically and in the 1970s is a skyrocketing of non-marital birth rates, you, meaning you have a skyrocketing of babies being born to unmarried mothers, a lot of people are going to be like, why are you bringing this into this? What does this have to do with racism? And my answer is, it's everything to do with the narrative of racism in America today. Okay, it has everything to do with it. Kids need parents. Kids need a mother and a father who are devoted to them. If they have that, they do well. If they don't have that, they don't do well. Okay? These are some stats on fatherlessness. Okay, because generally what happens is if you don't have married father and mother, then the child lives with mother, okay? Single mother households, all right? What you're going to find is that 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. That's 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. That's 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. That's 14 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. That is nine times the average, okay? The, the issue is that it's fatherlessness. That's the issue. It's not about race at all. All of this stuff that's based on race is a lie. And it's an incredible lie because it's it's so effective, right? There's so many people that believe this now in America. And it's not about race. It's about sex. As Christians, we should understand this, right? Like, why is God such a prude, right? Why are sexual commands so important in Scripture? This is the reason why. Because if we don't treat sex as a holy thing, if we're casual in our sexual practices, then what happens is children grow up, if they're not aborted, then children grow up in a situation that's so painful and so hard, right? And it's happening all over the place. Again, go back to this. Because what happens is 
if you have kids that grow up with two committed parents, married parents, right? Then what you have is you have two parents. They're helping provide an income, right? Helping to care for the child. Okay, they're getting the 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 unique benefits of both a father and a mother. I think you need both, in my opinion. All right, and the proof is in the pudding. Okay, children that grow up in that environment do better socioeconomically. All right, and this this should not be a mystery as to why. Okay, this should be pretty obvious as to why. All right. When you grow up without a father, like many kids do, like most black kids do, right? We're talking today, look at the non-marital birth rate amongst the black population today. All right, it's over 70% today. All right, I've seen figures putting as high as 77% non-marital birth rates in the black community. Okay, that's three-fourths. Okay, three-fourths of black kids are born without a committed father in their lives. All right, and... Of course it's hard to, to thrive in that situation. You've got a mom then who is trying to work to pay for things, right? Who can't give attention. Children feel neglected. They feel abandoned, right? Of course it's hard for them to do well in school. Of course it's hard for them to be emotionally healthy enough to do all the things that you have to in life. Life is hard. Life is hard if you have two committed parents. It's like twice as hard if you don't, all right? And that's what we see in the data, all right? What we see is that white people today have about 30, I, I think it's even closer to 40% now, okay? White people today um, have, you know, about 40% now have, um, are born to single mothers. Okay, well, guess what group is the lowest? That's right, it's Asians, all right? Asians are like 20%, okay? Asians are like 20%, meaning... 80% of Asian kids are born in a context where they have parents who are married and committed to one another, okay? And what I'm telling you is that that is what determines whether people succeed, okay? That is determines that is the biggest determinant of whether they're healthy, okay? It's having committed married parents, all right? And look, the data backs it up. This is the median income by race, all right? What you're going to see is that on this, on this chart, we've got five different races, all right, at the bottom, we have blacks. They make a median income of $40,000 a year. Then you have Indians. American Indians, they make $41,000 a year median income. Then Hispanics at 50. Then whites at 68. And way, way at the top, you have Asians at $81,000 a year in terms of median income. Can I just say that, that those rates track this chart almost perfectly? Okay, those rates track the non-marital birth rate chart perfectly. The group that has the highest... You know, non-marital birth rate does the worst economically. That's how it works. Okay? And on this chart, you've got blacks way at the top, over 70%. You've got Native Americans right below them, okay, at like 65%, something like that. All right? Then you've got Hispanics, then you've got whites, and then you've got Asians. All right? It tracks it perfectly. And that's, this is the reality of what we're seeing. Okay, this is the reason why some groups do better socioeconomically. It has nothing to do with quote-unquote systemic racism. That is a lie. Systemic racism is a lie. Okay, and I've already shown the evidence. There's so much evidence about this. Okay, is, is affirmative action fixing everything? And it is racism. Okay, affirmative action is quote-unquote social justice. It is fixing historic injustices by doing present discrimination today to atone for past discrimination. Is it fixing anything? The answer is no. It's not fixing a dang thing. 
Asians still are doing great. Black people still are doing bad, right? Because the whole idea that it was, you know, white people refusing to let black people into their college, and that's why black... That's all garbage. That's all garbage. It's not to say that that stuff never happened. It did happen. We did have systemic racism. We had Jim Crow laws in America. But the point is that Jim Crow was actually not a big deal, right? I know that sounds weird because people are like, oh, what do you mean it wasn't a big deal that black people couldn't drink at the same water fountain as white people, right? Of course that was a big deal. And no, it wasn't, right? I, look, I get that it's wrong. I get that it's, 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 not, it's not fair. I get that. But if we're talking about this is what caused black people to make such little money, no, it has n- almost nothing to do with that has almost nothing to do with that which if you just take a you know a step back and think about it for 5 seconds it doesn't matter right it doesn't it, that's not what causes people groups to economically succeed all right and again i've i've shown that with with like jews i've shown that with asians did asians come from money no most asians came from immigrant families the first generation of asians tend to be very poor and the second generation of asians tend to do much better because they value family and they value education in every historical cultural context where you see a people group value family and education those groups do well no matter what context they're in okay and the argument that you hear again and again from people is like no the reason why black people today can't do well is because of systemic racism today and because of all the systemic racism in the past and you know what do you mean like why are there why is there so much black fatherlessness because of slavery because in slavery families were broken up and i just want to say that's 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 bull that is bull okay look go back to the chart what percentage of black people all right were born to married couples in 1940, right? Below 20%. Below 20%. Today it's 77%. It was below 20% in 1940. The idea that it's from slavery is laughable. It's not from slavery. It's from mores, from changing ethics in the 1960s and 70s. By the way, that's, you know, free love. That's when the birth control pill and contraception were developed, right? That's that's when abortion was legalized in the 1970s. That's what we're talking about here, okay? Don't say this. That has nothing to do with race. That's lies. It has to do with sex. And that's the part that's really offensive to people. They, they don't want to hear that it's sex, that it's sexual sin specifically that is causing all of these problems in society. They don't want to hear that, Right? But that is the truth, and I just say as a Christian, that's our calling. Our job is to preach the truth of the gospel that our sin is destroying us as a people. Our sin is destroying us. And of course people don't want to hear that. People didn't want to hear Jesus talk about their sin either, right? That's the way this works, right? But it's the truth. Sin is destroying America. It's responsible for all of these things that we see in these fatherless stats. Youth suicides, homeless and runaway children, behavior disorders, rapists. Why is this happening? Because people have sex without being committed in marriage. That's why it happens. And people don't want to admit that. But that is what's going on here. Okay, it's not a race issue. Okay, 
when people are talking about it, it's a legacy from slavery, here's this is Jason Riley, okay? He's a black writer. This is him writing in the Wall Street Journal. He said this, quote, Between 1890 and 1940, black marriage rates in the United States were higher than white marriage rates. Okay, take a second and just think about that for a second. Between 1890, we had the Civil War in, in you know, the 1860s, right? In 1890, this is right after the Civil War, okay, 20-something years after, black marriage rates in the U.S. were higher than white marriage rates. In the 1940s and 50s, black labor participation rates exceeded those of whites. Black incomes grew much faster than white incomes, and the black poverty rate fell by 40 percentage points. Between 1940 and 1970, that is, during Jim Crow and prior to the era of affirmative action, the number of blacks in middle-class professions quadrupled. In other words, racial gaps were narrowing. Okay, This is all through the Jim Crow period. Jim Crow period is that period after the Civil War where all of these you know, southern states started instituting these racist laws, such as black people have to sit in the back of the bus, such as black people can't drink at the same water fountain, such as black people have to go to a different school than white people. Right? These are all Jim Crow laws. And what Jason Riley's point is, is that even during that period where all of these discriminatory laws were persecuting black people, they were still, socioeconomically, they were growing like crazy. Okay? Steady progress was being made, he says. Blacks today hear plenty about what they can't achieve due to the legacy of slavery, not enough about what they did in fact achieve, notwithstanding hundreds of years in bondage following, followed by decades of legal segregation. But then he says this, in the post-60s era, these positive trends would slow stall or in some cases even reverse course. The homicide rate for black men fell by 18% in the 1940s and by another 22% in the 1950s, but in the 1960s, all of those gains would vanish as the homicide rate for black males rose by nearly 90%. Think about that. The homicide rate for black males in the 1960s rose by 90% after they had been falling for decades. How did that happen? What happened in the 1960s? I'll tell you what happened. Black power. Okay, black power happened. Malcolm X. What is black power? It is, it is the the precursor to critical race theory. Okay, it was the whole idea of you know we're we're not going to coexist with white people. We're not going to love our white brothers like Martin Luther King Jr. says. We're going to hate the white people. We're going to take back our power. Right? It was an ideology of bitterness and resentment and grievance. It is the same ideology, the spirit of the same ideology that exists today in Black Lives Matter. It's the same thing, okay? And that ideology catching on the black community caused homicide rates to grow by 90%. Okay? Mark, Karl Marx was right in the sense that ideology really matters. Okay? The problem is if you believe his ideology, it destroys your people group. And it has for the last hundred years throughout the world. Okay? A lot of people say, you know, no, don't try and twist it. America, we know, had slaves. We know that America was was steeped in white supremacy. You're giving all these examples of, like, Chinese people and Jews outside of America. But that doesn't matter because America is a white supremacist nation. Wrong. That's a lie. That is a lie. Okay? The idea that slavery was somehow created in America, that is such garbage. Right? Slavery was part of every major civilization until the 19th century abolitionist movement in the West. Okay? The, 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 the crazy thing about the history of slavery is that, you know, uh, 
people today, especially in America, they blame America like America was the the most racist nation, and you know the the all the slaves. No, what America did, and I, we have to give credit to Britain because Britain was really the the driver of this. Is America and Britain and some of the other Western European nations were actually the ones that abolished slavery all throughout the world. That isn't that is incredible. In fact, you know. There was a thriving West African slave trade. We always talk about how slaves were brought to America from Africa, right, on this on these slave ships. That's true, but what they never tell you, and I didn't even know this until after I graduated from college because nobody ever mentioned it when I was in college, is that 95% of slaves from Africa did not go to North America, all right? The vast majority of slaves from Africa actually went to uh, the Muslim lands in the Middle East, to the Ottomans. Okay, and to South America. Okay, if you look at, you know, like Brazilians today, there's a lot of African blood there, right? There's a lot of black-looking people, okay? That's because that's where most of the slaves went. Okay, most of the slaves did not go to North America. Only about 5%. Okay, that is an insane statistic. So this idea that America was steeped in white supremacy, you know, it's like, what nation are they comparing to? What nation was not steeped in so-called white supremacy? Right? They all were, including Africa, because Africa was, you know, they, they, the way slaves were taken was they were captured in battle and they were sold by other African tribes. Okay? You had plenty of Africans participating in the slave trade. Okay? It, it's, it's so ridiculous. White supremacy. What a garbage <laughs> explainer for all this stuff. No, it had nothing to do with white supremacy. Okay? It had to do with making money. And guess what? Everybody had been doing it for hundreds of years. Okay, for hundreds of years they'd been doing it. But what we saw was that a, a spiritual movement, a Christian movement, was birthed out of the Second Great Awakening in England and America, and out of that movement rose a cry to end slavery. And that was the abolition movement, okay? And the Christians that drove that movement not only abolished slavery in their respective countries, in Britain and in America, but then they went and we abolished it all over the world. Okay, that's the heritage of Christianity, all right? And that is something that never gets talked about because it's a lie. The whole narrative is a lie. All right. I would encourage you, if you want to read more about that history, Thomas Sowell has a phenomenal book called Black Rednecks and White Liberals, where he just really dives deep into all this. Thomas Sowell is a professor at Stanford. Okay. Well, he's part of the, the, the Hoover Institute there at Stanford University. He's a researcher. Okay. I would highly recommend you check him out. Okay. His books are the best on all this stuff. Okay. He's a black economist. All right. All right, that's that's the real, you know, history of the slave movement, okay? The truth is this. Marxism, what it does is it it says, "Hey, you have hardships in your life, that's because you're oppressed." And let me tell you, you're oppressed by these people, okay? And that's why life is so hard for you, and that's why you're not making as much money as you should, and that's why you're not honored like you should be honored. And I, it's such a destructive philosophy. It destroyed so many nations throughout the 20th century. This is why, you know, partly I'm glad that I was a history major because I studied a lot of this stuff, okay? And people people are always, you know, you know, like if you ask people, would you know, if you lived back in, you know, South Carolina in the 1800s, like, would you be an abolitionist? And everyone's like, of course I would be. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> of course you 
you would not. Like, no, you wouldn't. Like, the idea that we can transcend our own cultural, you know, our our own historical context is is such a lie, right? It's actually much better if you put down the arrogance and you try to understand how it is that so many people believe this, okay? And that's actually really helpful when you're studying Marxism. How is it that so many people throughout the 20th century believed in the ideas of Marx and communism that they were, they were willing to have these revolutions and to do all these terrible things that kept happening again and again? And I say it's, be, it's for the same reasons that people are believing it today. It's the exact same reasons, okay? Because people are hurt. They're hurt and wounded and bitter and Marxism offers an explanation and a comfort as to why, and it gives you purpose. It says, hey, you can fight this injustice, right? You can be part of, you know, the freedom fighters, okay? And it gives this noble calling. And so many people in America are, are so lacking for calling, right? But what we have to understand is that Marxism is a, it is a false vision of the kingdom of God, all right? I had one of my students in my Bible study the other day, you know, ask me, like, Pastor Dennis, doesn't, you know, because we were studying Acts a little bit, and we're talking about how all the, you know, all the early Christians, you know, they sold their property, and they they, they gave the money to the poor and the widows, and they shared everything, and, you know, it's just like, isn't that like kind of like communism? I said, yeah, it's a lot like communism. The only difference is that one is voluntary, and one is forced, and that's the great difference. Like, once you force altruism, generosity, you kill it. You can't force it and have it be healthy, right? That's why actually capitalism, for all its flaws, is the healthiest you know, system that we have today of economy because it just gives people freedom, right? It doesn't force anybody to be generous. That's actually the job of the church, right? We're, we call people to be generous, even though they don't have to be. The government's not going to put them in jail if they're not generous, but we call them to do it because they have the freedom to do it. And that keeps it healthy, right? If the church stops being an influence in America, then, yeah, it will get unhealthy. Right? But I'll tell you, it's, it's way more healthy than communism where they try and force you to be generous. Okay, It causes the whole system to fall apart. All right? Marx's ideas have failed in every single country that's been foolish enough to try his ideas, okay? I see this, you know, I always talk to Koreans because I'm, you know, I've worked with the Korean church a good amount over the past number of years, and this should be most obvious to Koreans, right? Because we have such a stark contrast between North Korea and South Korea. South Korea, you know, essentially became the disciples of America, right? And North Korea became the disciples of, you know, China and Russia and the, and the communist system, and we can see how incredible the disparity is, right? And yet, what you have today is you have all these young Koreans that have bought into Marxism. And it's always like, you know, they don't want to look too hard at how, you know, how similar it is to communism. You know, the, the ideas that they espouse. But it is. It's, it has the same root. It's indulging the hurt, Okay. It's indulging that feeling of I've been wronged, right? I've been wronged, I've been oppressed, and feeding that, you know. And um, Marxism is a counterfeit vision of the kingdom of God. That's what it is, all right? But what we want to understand is that there is a, a real solution, okay? There's there's a real solution here, Um 
there's a true version. If Marxism is a counterfeit ideology and counterfeit vision of the kingdom of God, then what's it counterfeiting? What's the true thing? All right. And to do that, we have to understand there is an actual biblical paradigm of oppression. All right. There is a biblical paradigm of oppression. But one of the one of the things um, one of the problems in the church is we haven't understood the Bible's paradigm of this. I think. And which is one of the reasons why we've bought into so much of the Marxist stuff. So many churches have. Okay. What Scripture tells us is that hum- humans are oppressed. We are oppressed. Okay. So when people feel like they're oppressed, that's true. That's a true thing. Okay. Like there's a reason why people feel wronged and like, you know, they have these deep-seated wounds and hurts. Okay. That are real. Those are real things. But what the scriptures will point out is that our actual primary oppressors are not other people. Okay, our primary oppressors are actually spiritual powers who manipulate people to their ends. Okay? I know that this this sounds this might sound a little bit weird, but this is the biblical worldview. Right? This is the biblical worldview. Like if you don't believe in angels and demons as a Christian, I just want to say you're lacking a biblical worldview. You're more humanist than Christian at that point. How are you going to understand the biblical worldview if you don't even believe in in, in these spiritual beings? Okay, you <laughs> like that's pretty important. It's pretty central to the entire you know storyline of the Bible. All right, I have some you know examples from Paul's writings. Okay, in Galatians four eight he says this: Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Okay, so this is the idea that humans were in slavery to the devil, okay, and to these hostile spiritual forces, these principalities, he calls them Ephesians, all right? Because from the biblical perspective, you have these spiritual beings, and they're ruling over the earth, and they are manipulating and using people. All right, Ephesians 2 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Okay, so again, what he's saying is that the reason why people act disobedient is because they, they're influenced by this ruler of the kingdom of the air, right? The ways of this world. He influences all of that, okay? And so, you know, this is the whole idea of, you know, redemption, that we've been redeemed, okay? If we're in Christ, we've been redeemed. What that means is that we were slaves to these beings, and then we were purchased by the blood of Christ, right? And then we were translated out of that kingdom into the kingdom of the Son, where now we belong in the spiritual realm, we belong to the Son and not to these other spiritual beings who are oppressing humans, okay? That is the biblical paradigm of oppression, okay? And it's real. There's a reason why people feel oppressed. And my my entire, uh, you know, point here is that if we point people towards a Marxist prescription of how to fix it, hey, the way that we fix all these feelings of oppression that you have is, you know, we... You know, we fight for affirmative action. It's just so lame, it's hard for me to say it, right? We fight for affirmative action so that more black people can get representation in college, so that they can make more money and, you know, be successful engineers, and that will fix the world, (laughs) you know, something like that, right? Or we fight climate oppression by, you know, shutting down, 
you know, whenever companies is polluting the earth and we plant trees and, you know, we're, we're, we're building a better earth, a freer earth, where our earth is now free. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm sorry to kind of poke fun at, at this stuff, but I just, it's so ridiculous. Okay, it's so ridiculous. Um, uh, but this is, this is actual core ideology for so many people now living in, the, in, in our nation. Okay, well, the path the Bible lays out is a different path. Okay, the path that the Bible lays out, if you want to be free of oppression, this is how you do it. You admit your own sin. <laughs> okay, the big, you know, one of the reasons why Marxism is so toxic is because what it does is it trains you to see the sins of others and to ignore the sins of yourself, right? This whole idea that black people can't be racist, it's so toxic, right? I'm just going to be honest. Like, most of, most of the racist people that I've met in my life are black people, okay? That's just the truth, all right? I've actually met very few racist white people, okay? I've met some racist Koreans for sure, <laughs> Okay, but uh, I, most of the racism that I see, it's black people, okay? And to be clear, that's not because all black people are racist, but it's because there is a strong minority in the black community that believes this Marxist stuff, this the, this this ideology of grievance, like the black power stuff. And it, it, it nurtures that hatred and that resentment and that bigotry, okay? And it's a huge problem because in our culture, we can't call it out and correct it. Right? It's like if you call it out, then you're the racist, right? You're the white supremacist, okay? It's really unhealthy, but that's the way that it is in our culture right now. All right. But the Bible says that our path to freedom is start starts by admitting our own sin. Okay, don't look at the sins of all these other people first. Start to realize that you've actually caused suffering and pain in the lives of others also. All right. What that does is it brings humility to us. Right? We go, you know, hey, it's not that all those other people are the problem. I'm part of the problem too, right? Our sin is the problem, okay? And then you, and then we confess Christ, right? We say, hey, Jesus, I want you as my Lord, okay? And we receive his forgiveness, and we commit to following his word, okay? Obey his commands, all right? And this works, okay? This works, because then God says that he will forgive our sin, he will heal us, Right? He will provide for us. This is like the, the Christian vision is that we put our hope not in other people. Not that some politician is going to come and save us. Not that some you know human tribe is going to do everything right. No, we know people are sinful. They're, they're messed up. But we actually believe that God can provide for us, that he can protect us, that he can restore us, right? that he will compensate us on the day of judgment for the ways that we've been wronged. Okay, All of that, we put our hope in God. And that's what enables us to actually be forces for good in this earth, okay? And then we have the power to extend forgiveness to those that wronged us, all right? Um, and Jesus says this in John 8. He says, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You cannot claim to be an oppressed person. I have a major problem, okay, with, you know, Christians who claim to be oppressed, right? If, I don't care, you know, if you're a black Christian, if you're a gay Christian, if you, you know, I don't think you can be a gay Christian, but if you think you're a gay Christian, if you think you're a Korean Christian who's oppressed, whatever, okay? Whatever kind of Christian you are, if you think you're oppressed, I, I think you're misunderstanding the gospel, okay? If you're a Christian... You're not oppressed, okay? You can be persecuted. 
You can have injustices on, you can be unjustly treated for sure, but that's everybody in this earth, okay? But to identify as an oppressed person, I think fundamentally misunderstands the gospel. No, no, no. If anyone's in Christ, there's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All right, I am, as a, as a Christian, I'm now seated in heavenly places with Christ. All right, I'm an heir to all things, to rulership in heaven and earth. Okay, I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All right, I can't identify as an oppressed person. That's a worldly point of view. Maybe from a worldly point of view, Paul, you know, talked about how, as an apostle, that he was, you know, persecuted on every side. Right, that he suffered. You know, all this torture, shipwreck, everything, pressed down, right, but not destroyed, okay? He says he, he suffers all things so that he may gain Christ, okay? And that is a Christian worldview, okay? We're not living for honors and treasures in this life. We're living for the approval of God who will reward us in eternity, okay? All right, now very practically, the reason why Marxism destroys is because it, it teaches people to, number one, not be grateful, okay? I always say this, gratitude is, is you know, the antidote for Marxism. Like, gratitude. Just being grateful for what you have, okay? The truth is this, you know, people are, are everybody's claiming to be oppressed. I don't want to say everybody, many people are claiming to be oppressed. No American is oppressed, I'm sorry. In the grand scheme, if we're just talking about relative oppression, okay? I, we, I already made the, the case that from... In an absolute sense, all of us are oppressed by spiritual beings. And that's true. When we get to heaven and we see how wonderful life is, we'll be like, dude, that life we just lived was so hard. <laughs> right? It was filled with all sorts of oppression and tribulation and hardships. Okay? I believe all people are oppressed in a sense. But if we're just talking from a, from a human perspective on who the oppressed people groups are on earth, I'm sorry. Like, we're literally the richest people in the history of the world. Okay, I get it. Like, look, if you grow up in a single family, if you grow up and you're dealing with all sorts of medical issues, you're dealing with abuse, you're dealing, yes, are you oppressed? Well, of course, of course, on an individual sense. But if we're just talking about a group sense, you know how many people are, are dying to get into America? There's so many people that want to come here, right, to America, because we're so fabulously rich. Even a poor American is rich on a global standard, okay? And I'm not saying that we can't acknowledge that there are real hardships in life. There are. Okay, but what we can't do is compare ourselves to just rich people in America, literally the richest of the rich, and say I'm oppressed because I'm not that. Okay? That that is 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 a real deception. Okay, black Americans are the richest black people on the planet. Alright, that's hard. Okay, because a lot of people say, Well, I'm not as rich as the, the white people. Yeah, but you're way richer than a lot of other black people. You're way richer than the vast majority of other people on the, on in the earth, okay, like just starting out with gratitude, okay. Look, this is a temptation for all of us. All of us are tempted to look at the people that have more than us, and to complain and to be like, "Wow, why why is life so hard?" Right? And we we get into self pity. Self pity is a trap. Do not fall into self pity. It's a demonic trap. Okay. No, we're super blessed. Okay, if we're in Christ, then we're the most blessed of all people. Okay, but even if you're not in Christ and you're a, you know, you're an American living today, you're so incredibly blessed. Okay, and be able to recognize it, and and just be thankful for it. It brings so much humility, and it it it, it makes everything so much healthier. Okay, in the past fifty years, eighty percent of global extreme poverty has been eliminated. We're living through the greatest economic boom in the history of the world. All right, and so many people are complaining that you know 
all this bad stuff is happening. And I, I do see a lot of bad stuff happening. But we do have to be thankful for all the good stuff that has happened. Okay? Number two, all right, other than gratitude, is forgiveness. How do we fix this? It's, it's actually forgiveness. All right? It's forgiveness. This whole idea that America was rooted in white supremacy and they'll they'll never accept us and all of that's so toxic right so evil no no let's forgive like some people are holding on to bitterness for stuff that was done to their ancestors <laughs> you know like like no it's so unhealthy it's so unhealthy right no forgive those who have wronged you it actually brings so much freedom all right it doesn't excuse what they did Right? Wrong is wrong no matter what. But the problem is that when you hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness, you become blind to your own sin. And that's why there's so many people that are, are incredibly racist. I talked about how like most of the racist people I've seen in my life are actually black. Okay, And that's because I can tell you all of those people feel like they've been deeply wronged by white people. Right? I don't know what's been done to them. Right? I can't say, but what I can say... It honestly is that if you hold on to that unforgiveness of what's been of, of the wrong that's been done to you, it will make you a bitter person and you will wrong other people for sure. And that's the case for many people, okay? And rather, you know, it's so unhealthy that we as a culture come along and say, yeah, you were wronged, you know? Like, yeah, those 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 cops, you know, they've done so much so many evil things to you, right? To be clear, cops do do evil things sometimes, okay? I'm not trying to excuse that, right? But when we're coming in agreement with this narrative that excuses and encourages that type of bitterness, we're helping to destroy these people. Okay, we're helping to destroy these people. It's so unhealthy. Okay, and God makes it clear, right? Jesus makes it clear. If we do not forgive others in the ways they sin against us, He will not forgive us of our sins. All right, forgiveness is a, an essential. Like. As a minister, I can tell you that if you want to destroy a person, the best way to do it is to get them to have unforgiveness. That will absolutely destroy somebody, all right? That's how they get, you know, demonically oppressed, all right? And just being real, that's a lot of the real oppression that's there. It's, a lot of it is demonic, okay? We're talking about why the families break in the first place. A lot of it is demonic oppression, okay? We're, we live in a spiritual war zone, okay? And the last thing I'm going to say on all this, and we're done here, is you know how do we fix this? Well, we talked about gratitude, we talked about forgiveness, we talked about the gospel, and now we pursue a righteous culture, okay? Because the the Bible is really clear: sin brings curses, and righteousness brings blessings. That's one of the clearest lessons in Scripture, okay? Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people, okay? We cannot have a real conversation about about black criminality and poverty without a conversation about black sin. But to bring up sin now gets you persecuted and called a racist. Okay, I have incredible respect for black leaders that bring up black sin as being the cause of the problems. I have incredible respect. Those leaders get attacked so much. I saw Jasper Williams, a black pastor. He did Aretha Franklin's uh, memorial service. Right, He did a eulogy for her. Um, and I believe... It was, it was at that memorial service that he talked about black sin, about how we need, we need to take responsibility for the sin in our community. And man, they just lit loose on they He got attacked so much. I have profound respect for that man because I know as much as, you know, me as like a, uh, you know, as a half white person, if I bring this up, people, you know, naturally think I'm racist. But if you're black and you bring this up, it's, it's even worse, right? You get called an Uncle Tom, race traitor, the white 
you know, the black face of white supremacy, <laughs> you know, all this kind of stuff. There's so much persecution. I have incredible respect for the black leaders um, that, that speak out. And to be fair, there's many black leaders that actually do. And to me, those are some of the great heroes, okay, in our times. I'm talking about, you know, because I, I know how much persecution comes, right, when, when you start saying this kind of stuff. The same thing for formerly gay people that speak about how they're saved by Christ and he transformed. They get so much hate from the gay community. They get so much hate. Why? Because their voice is, is one of the most powerful voices in destroying these false narratives. All right? And that's, what, that's the way it works. When, you're, when you speak out and you're on the mark, you're attacking the stronghold on the mark, then you get attacked. That's how it works. Okay? And Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. All right? This is, this is the truth. These truths are hard and they're controversial but they provoke persecution because they attack these strongholds, okay? I'm telling you, this narrative of systemic racism is a stronghold in America, and it's already started to come down, okay? I, we're in 2023. I'll just say in just the three years since 2020, I've seen many more voices join the course of those who are laying out all the problems and flaws with this narrative, and um, I, now, that's why I think it's just essential that every Christian understand what's actually going on with this race issue and be able to talk about it you know, intelligently, Okay. All right. Um, we're going to stop there. I hope that's helpful. Um, again, this whole series is to give us a basic framework for understanding some of these basic issues because these are the ones that come up again and again. We're talking about race. We're talking about abortion. talked about homosexuality. talked about how do, should we even engage with people. This whole series is like that. We have a couple more episodes in this series before we wrap it up. Hope it's a blessing for you guys. God bless.